Welcome to the Kinjas Podcast. Here we will discuss dance, life, and whatever the f*** we want. Welcome back to another episode of the Kinjas Podcast Movement in the Shadows. I'm your host, Ben. Today we wrap up our three-part discussion on allyship. And uh, if you guys have listened to parts one and two, in part one, we just kind of had a internal discussion within Kinjas to kind of um, ask questions and talk about some of the, the ideologies and some of the questions that we've had um, in the recent weeks and um, even bringing up things with our um, upbringing and childhood um, and uh, just beginning to unpack a lot of those ideas. And as we moved into episode two, which was where we learned to kind of understand and internally um, unpack some of the the questions that we have as far as definitions of terminology and um, upon understanding those terms, how we can then externally um, have conversations with our close circles, whether that be family or friends or even in um, our workspaces. And today we have episode three and... um, we have our two very special guests today, Shea Crowder and Diane Wong. Shea is completing her PhD at Princeton University, and in the fall, she'll be a professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. And her research interests include black politics and intersectional American politics. And Diane Wong is a professor at, and multimedia storyteller based in New York City. She was born and raised in Flushing, Queens in New York City and her research is intimately tied to the Asian diaspora and urban immigrant experience. She's a member of the Chinatown Art Brigade and co-founder of the WOW Project, a community initiative based out of Wing on Wing & Co., the oldest store in Manhattan's Chinatown. In this conversation in particular with Shay and Diane, we wanted to get a, a deeper understanding on what can actually be done from the voting level at the ballot boxes. Um, and understanding from from the local level where we could be voting and what certain uh, the things that we vote for and the, the people that we put into certain positions, what differences those can make in actual change within our own cities as well as on a national level. And they help us unpack um, a lot of terms that have been uh, thrown around, such as defunding the police, um, what affirmative action is, uh, what reparations are, and uh, things like that. And um, I think it was very helpful for us to kind of uh, hear the um, from from their from their expertise what these things are and um, what these things will actually do when changed uh, in policy and how that will actually affect um, essentially uh, the people, right? And that's what we all kind of care about um, in having these conversations. And uh, moving beyond um, this, uh, moving beyond just even voting, uh, we talk a lot about um, what now? You know, voting is, uh, is one aspect of, uh, of change. It's one aspect of action. Um, but there are the, the things that we do within our daily lives, the conversations that we have at work with our friends, um, speaking up uh, for, for people when we see that um, they're being mistreated, things like that. And so we kind of unpack a lot of the things um, that go, obviously, that are very important at the ballot boxes but um, also moving forward from there as we um, are committing to being 
uh, lifelong partners in um, living in solidarity with our uh, black brothers and sisters. And so there's a lot in this episode that, um, you know, again, where every episode is a learning one. And um, in our uh, discussion as uh, Phil Garvin and Jason Bueno join me in, in co-hosting this one, um, just a lot of unpacking and a lot of uh, learning even as we're talking and a lot of just in the moment processes are uh, processing and um and and having diane and shea uh just being there to help us kind of um understand these things was very helpful and um you know this series you know if you guys have listened to it up until now thank you so much and we don't expect that uh this conversation stops with a three-part discussion you know this is something that we felt like and this is just one topic of allyship and as broad as that is we know that there's so much more to talk about and so um we're going to continue to have these conversations. We may even have uh, further episodes to expand on some ideas if we see uh, that that's fitting. Um, but, um, you know, we just wanted to invite you guys, our listeners, to just come on this journey with us and learn alongside us. And uh, we know that's a lot. there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot to learn. And, um, you know, it, it can get daunting and, and a little bit overwhelming. So, you know, hopefully as we're kind of taking things step by step, um, you can kind of follow along with us. Um, I think that's about it. This is a great conversation. Uh, again, you can go back to episodes uh, one and two of this series as well to kind of um, just kind of review or take notes or share it with your folks. Um, you know, all that is what this is for. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we got another great one. Let's get into it. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another live episode of the Kinja's podcast, Movement in the Shadows. I'm your host, Ben. Got my co-host, Jason Bueno of the Kinja's. And we also got Phil Garvin of the Kinjas. And uh, we have two very special guests. Um, I'll get into, uh, I'm going to introduce them in a second. But just to catch everybody up on uh, what we've been talking about for the past, uh, this is our third week now. Um, this is part three of our three-part discussion series on allyship. And uh, parts one and two are a available on our podcast so any streaming podcast platform you can look it up can just podcast but in part one we kind of started it out with an internal uh, sort of family discussion with Kinja's just the the brotherhood and and just kind of um, just getting out some thoughts and questions and just a very uh, open and honest vulnerable space where we're just trying to understand um, where we're at in light of just the recent um, just, yeah, just the unrest with uh, racial inequality and, and police brutality and us trying to get a grip on what that means um, in light of us specifically with even in our community. And in part two, last week, we had uh, Kimmy Manikis, who uh, kind of helped us explore a little bit um, more on the internal processing side of things and how to understand uh, terminology that's kind of being um you know, seen a lot on social media, uh, a lot of the things that we're kind of learning for the first time and sort of understanding those terms. And then from a place of understanding, um, asking ourselves questions of why we think certain ways, you know, why we think things are wrong or right. And ultimately how to externally take those things to our, you know, conversations with our families, our friends in our workplaces. And uh, so in this uh, part three, we wanted to take it a little bit, uh, the next step further, the uh, what, like the what's next sort of steps and um, recognizing that there is a lot to be done 
um, on a ground level in terms of uh, the voting. You know, we have we have a voice, we have a vote, we have the ability ability to um, enact change. And so, um, our very special guest today, uh, we have Shea Crowder and Diane hey. Wong. Hello, hello, ladies. Um, I'm gonna just do a brief intro. Uh, Shea Crowder is a uh, is completing her PhD at Princeton University. In the fall, she'll begin as a professor at Loyola Marymount University in LA, California. Her research interests include black politics and intersectional American politics. And Diane Wong is a professor and multimedia storyteller based in New York City, born and raised in Flushing, Queens in New York City. Her research is intimately tied to the Asian diaspora and urban immigrant experience. She is a member of the Chinatown Art Brigade and co-founder of the WOW Project, a community initiative based out of Wing On Wo and Company, the oldest store in Manhattan's Chinatown. And uh, you can follow them both on Instagram at Shea Crowder and uh, Diane is at Expert Demon. We'll plug those Instagram handles in the show notes. Um, Shea and Diane, welcome. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, we are doing this via Zoom and YouTube Live because you guys are remote, um, different parts of the world. Thank you, technology, that we can do this. Yeah. Right? Rock on. Uh, but thank you guys so much for coming on. And, um, you know, as we've been prepping for this uh, third episode, um, we've been talking a lot because we wanted to make sure that uh, we can structure it in a way where we can kind of hit the points that we feel um, are going to be uh, relevant and important to us to learn from as well as our community and our uh, you know, in particular, the dance community that we have a strong sort of uh, following and reach to. And um, so, you know, we were trying to figure out how do we kind of package everything um, into kind of an hour long conversation. So, um, yeah, I kind of just wanted to open up the floor to you ladies um, in terms of your thoughts. I don't know if you had a chance to kind of, you know, um, listen in on the previous two, but like, uh, yeah, just wanted to kind of open the floor to you ladies. Sure. Thanks so much, Ben. Um, I'll start and then I'll hand it off to Diane. Uh, so good evening, Ben, Jason, Philip. Uh, thank you all so much for inviting uh, Diane and myself to be a part of this conversation. Uh, when we first connected uh, a week or so ago, one of the sort of questions that we discussed uh, and one of the themes that we talked about during that time is a sort of question of now what? Uh, you know, I think that's a particularly relevant question at this time. Over the past few weeks and months, uh, people have become kind of newly sort of awakened and energized uh, surrounding addressing issues of anti-blackness in this country in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Tony McDade. Uh, police brutality and state-sanctioned violence is one form of discrimination that black people face, but there are other more intimate forms of insidious anti-blackness that uh, African-Americans experience in this country on a daily basis. So as we consider how we are going to continue to show up as allies in this moment and what we uh, wanna do next, I wanna push us to consider what it means to be an ally or better yet, an accomplice. The term ally generally refers to 
someone who shows solidarity, generally on a temporary basis with a group that they're not a part of. An accomplice, on the other hand, requires a sort of collaboration and a disruption of the status quo. While allyship generally seems polite, being an accomplice requires doing disruptive work that is not easy, polite, or well-packaged. Uh, in fact, being an accomplice might cost you something. So in addition to asking the question of now what, what do we do next, uh, another question that we might consider is what are the costs that we have to pay to show up for and to support Black people in this moment? I'm really excited about this conversation, and Diane, with that, I'll pass it to you. Thank you, um, Shaya, for pulling me into this. Um, we're part of a Thank woman you. of color writing group together. <laughs> and that's sort of how it happened. Um, thank you, Ben, Phil, and Jason for hosting us. Um, my name is Diane. I come to you from um, the unceded territories of the Lenin Lenape people. And uh, my pronouns are she, hers. Um, I'm currently a writer, an educator, artist, and professor based in Flushing, Queens in New York City. Um, Full-time wise, I write and teach on Asian American politics, race, gender, and sexuality, cultural media studies, um, youth activism, and community-engaged research. Um, I'm an active member of the Chinatown Art Brigade and co-founder of the WAB Project, um, which is a community initiative that combats gentrification and displacement and is based out of the oldest um, store in Manhattan's Chinatown, going on Moen Co. Um, over at 26 Mott Street. And so I would say that I came into um, this work during college. Um, a pivotal moment for me was when I took my first ethnic studies and Asian American studies class called Asian Americas. I remember um, the, the first moments when I read Carlos Bolosan's um, America's in the Hearts, Gary Okahiro's Margins and Mainstreams, and Ronald Takaki's Sure. Yes, those were the first times I really saw my own ancestral histories reflected in writing. And that was so powerful, right? Those were also the first moments that I realized that the histories of my people were so intimately interwoven with the histories of Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. And we rarely get the chance to learn about these intersectional histories, right? And um, these powerful interstitial moments of solidarity, of intimacy and struggle between our communities. And there's a good reason for this, right? Because they don't want us to, because white supremacy and the systems, the laws, the policies, the politics um, sort of set, set it up in a way that um, pits our communities against each other, right? So our communities are always in paradox. Um, and I learned about all of this the hard way um, through conversations with my own immigrant family members, right? And noticing the insidious ways in which anti-Black sentiments become normalized over time, across months, years, decades. Um, and so the reality is that anti-Blackness is so deeply ingrained into the collective memory of Asian immigrant refugee communities, right, upon arrival here in the United States, but also from experiences in the home country. Um, to even begin talking about solidarity, right, requires us as Asian Americans to uncover the root cause of where our anti-Black ideologies stem from. Right. And our own family's complicated histories with colonialism, with imperialism, war of violence, migration, casteism, um, and labor. Right. To move towards transformative change with Black communities is to look internally and to really ask ourselves, how am I anti-Black? 
how have I reproduced anti-blackness or the things that um, enable violence against black folks and in particular black queer and trans communities. Um, what do I need to unlearn and what do I need to relearn, right? And in line with the themes of the podcast tonight, much of what is still left to learn for Asian Americans is within the political realm. Asian Americans are a highly diverse electorate, um, including Thai, right? Indian, Filipino, Korean, Chinese, Pakistani, Cambodian, Laotian, Bangladeshi, Nepalese, Burmese, right? Voters, among many other groups. Between 2000 and 2020, the number of Asian American um, eligible voters more than doubled in the United States, growing, to, growing by 139%. Asian Americans play an increasingly important role in shaping both national and local elections, right? And despite the fact that the, me the media and some academics often portray Asian Americans as um, an apolitical sleeping giant is a term that they love. Asian Americans actually have a very long history of involvement in politics and uh, political mobilization right, around issues of policing, affordable housing, displacement, employment, abortion. And for us to even be using the term Asian American right now tonight is a political commitment and a nod to the past. Um, Berkeley students, Eugene Ichioka and Emma G who inspired by the black power movement and the protests against Vietnam War coined the term Asian American in defiance and a rejection of mainstream labels for at the time, um, like Oriental. And so we owe it to Black activists who paved the way for Asian Americans to create our own narratives, right, and to fight for self-determination. And so I'll delve deeper into some of these histories of solidarity and some of the more substantive issues so that we can think more deeply about the possibilities and also limitations of Asian American politics in the fight for Black liberation. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that paints us a, a really good picture of like a starting point. And I think that's where we've also um, in our previous two conversations been trying to understand, um, you know, I think everybody has their own experience when it comes to, uh, let's say, just from our personal place, from the API sort of, um, you know, experience growing up in, in um, the United States. You know, we had immigrant parents that, you know, immigrated here from the respective countries from Asia and then raising us um, in, in their understanding of what this American dream is. And so a lot of even, I'll just speak for myself, a lot of like my own um, uh, thoughts in terms of what it means to be successful and how to get there. And not only the concept of success, but um, even on a societal standpoint, the way that I view uh, myself as an Asian American in light of this place where I am essentially a foreigner because my parents have kind of put that into my my head that we're, we're foreigners here so we need to work harder we need to um, you know kind of it's, it's not going to be as easy for us you know what I'm saying and, and that was kind of just my sort of uh, experience and even in, in terms of uh, to be totally honest, the um, importance of voting was never really uh, uh, like put upon me even by my parents other than maybe the president. And, and so I never really understood what the role and the, the absolute, um, you know, like necessity for uh, understanding what level of vote I even have and what I should be even like aware of, you know? So, um, you know, in light of, you know, all of, 
just, yeah, all types of, um, you know, from the local level to obviously uh, to the national level that we have the ability, what role would you say um, that elections have in, in light of our current uh, climate right now? Ben, um, I'll chime in there. Thank you uh, so much for sharing some of your own experience and how that's kind of sort of reflected your questions and also your stance um, and your orientation towards thinking about voting. Um, so yeah, in this moment, you know, people have hit the streets. We've seen people protesting. Uh, and 2020 is a really novel and interesting year for a lot of reasons, right? We're in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, we're in this sort of racial reckoning that's happening across the country. And it is also simultaneously uh, an election year. Um, and so a sort of kind of natural follow-up to the, the politics that we've seen in the street is how should this map on to what we see in the voting booth, right? And what we, what what'll go down in November. Um, you know, the presidential election, I really can't uh, overstate the importance <laughs> of getting, uh, you know, uh, the man who's currently in office, Donald Trump, out of office. Uh, I think that this is something that is mutually beneficial for um, all sort of marginalized groups at the intersection of race, immigrant status, um, gender, sexuality, as well as other axes of marginalization, you know. Uh, Trump has shown to be sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, um, and downright racist, and that's all in the past week. Um, and so, you know, as we consider um, the different communities who supported Trump, I think, you know, it, it's important to also acknowledge that over 25% of Asian Americans did, in fact, vote for Trump in the 2016 election. Now, of course, that looks different uh, when you break that um, and you disaggregate that data across um, Asian American immigrant groups and also across generation. Um, and I think that what that kind of speaks to also is the importance of uh, having these hard conversations at home uh, with regard to the election, with regard to who you're going to be supporting. Um, and beyond thinking about the sort of presidential vote choice on the ballot, because, uh, you know, to many people, they sort of understand the, uh, the, the top-down importance of that. I think it's also important to kind of think about our elections at the local level. You know, right now, uh, there have been calls to defund the police. Um, there have been calls for abolition. Uh, there have been calls for affirmative action, things that will kind of get into the meat and potatoes of understanding later. But in terms of figuring out how those policies are actually passed, how, how these concepts turn into actionable policies, uh, that that's where it's important to kind of think about the role of the attorney general, our mayors, our shares, our, um, our school board representatives. Uh, and so as you enter the, the, voting, the voting booth uh, this November, something that is incredibly important is to know your ballot before you get into the voting bo uh, box, right? And so uh, one resource that I'll plug is vote411.org. You can put in your zip code there and uh, you'll get a sort of sheet, a sort of cheat sheet with an O overview of the candidates and some of their policy positions. Uh, and so as we think about moving forward to the next election, um, and in some ways, uh, the ways in and outside of voting, we show up politically in this moment, it's also really important to think about local politics. Um, 
later on I'll discuss uh, some of the ways that we can show up outside of the voting booth, but it's important to also remember that elections are one tool in a broader sort of toolkit of political engagement, right? So voting is, it definitely is a source of harm reduction, uh, but it's not necessarily the, the place at which all sort of radical political change happens, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I think I'll leave it, uh, leave it there for now and kind of talk about some of the other ways we can show up later. Awesome. Um, and, uh, also just, uh, for you guys in watching right now, um, on YouTube, um, feel free to plug in questions, uh, in the chat on YouTube and, uh, we're going to try to get to, um, answer as many of those at the end of this conversation. So, uh, yeah, if you guys have any questions with the things that we're talking about now and even the... Uh, the things that we talk about, some of the resources, websites, and all, all, all sorts of those sorts of things, um, I'm going to plug those into the show notes so that um, you guys can reference those things later. Um, but yeah, so Shay, I, I love how you you um, you hit some kind of hot buttons in terms of, uh, in, in, in my mind, some buzzwords, things like defunding the police, um, uh, affirmative action, abolition, um, reparations, things like that, things that are um, I, I call those hot button words because I mean, if any if anyone's been out to the protests, I'm sure you've seen them on on signs, and um, you're seeing a bunch of posts on Instagram. So, um, can we can you sort of maybe walk us through maybe even some of the definitions? Because I've heard a lot of different uh, perspectives on defunding the police and people um, essentially defining it in a way where it can be problematic if you define something incorrectly, right? So, um, you know, can you kind of maybe, um, yeah, walk us through maybe some of the definitions of uh, what those terms mean and what they would essentially be doing, um, you know, say if those things actually push through? Um, I can take a shot at this. So... I would say um, first to follow the lead of black organizers in your cities, right? And the demands that are coming out of the movement for black lives. Um, black leaders have, have, success, have successfully um, been calling, right? For defunding of police and police departments while at the same time calling for the investment of resources, right? In black communities and black youth and black institutions um, two weeks ago, the Minneapolis um, City Council approved um, removing police, um, approved um, disbanding the police department just two days ago, right? The Madison School Board approved removing police from schools. And so make no mistake, this is the result of years of grassroots organizing and sustained pressure right, on the ground. But these changes are possible. Um, Asian Americans should push at the local and national levels to defund the police. Um, I know that a lot of Asian Americans have long been advocating for the defunding of ICE and immigration detention centers, right, that have torn so many um, South and Southeast Asian families apart. But police and ICE are products of the same system, right, to surveil and murder Black people and immigrants. And so it's important for Asian Americans to know that there's nothing natural about this modern day system of policing that we're seeing, right, and that the origins of policing are so deeply interwoven um, in our nation's long and violent history of slavery and slave patrol, right? So we have to get our communities, our parents on board to see that defunding the police is actually not that radical of an idea, especially when the state has had such a long history of defunding things, 
um, like education, health, social services. And so it's really time to push back. Um, and so we need to dismantle the idea that the police and the surveillance state keeps us safe. And we need to reimagine what wellness and what community safety can look like. Um, and so the second policy area um, would be affirmative action. Um, as many of you probably already know, affirmative action was instituted at the federal level in an effort to increase women, right, the representation of women, but also racial minorities in um, areas of employment and education. Unfortunately, affirmative action has since been a controversial issue among some Asian Americans, right, in particular with East Asian and South Asian Indian communities who've been mobilizing to ban affirmative action programs um, and university race-based admissions. Um, a recent example of this was when a group um, called Students for Fair Admissions filed a lawsuit at the, at the federal uh, district court in Massachusetts against Harvard, right, claiming that the university discriminates against Asian American applicants. Um, currently on the California ballot is an amendment known as ACA 5, which would repeal an affirmative action ban that was put in place nearly two decades ago, allowing for race conscious admissions at public universities, places like UCs, right? And so there's a vocal minority of Asian parents who have been successfully mobilizing to defeat this measure, right? This has happened before, and much of it has been taking place on social media platforms like WeChat and um, getting press like in ethnic newspapers. So this is sort of um, ironic, right? When the reality is that the vast majority of Asian Americans have historically and continue to support affirmative action, right? So I think it's really critical, um, especially, you know, the youth tuning in to call in your family members to affirm the need for policies at the local, state, and national level that remedy ongoing disparities, right? Um, through affirmative action. And so the third policy area I do want to uplift is reparations. Um, I really want Asian Americans to grapple with the question of reparations and um, sort of the question that um, Shaya sort of started us off with, right? The question of what are we willing to let go? Um, and this is not a test of our imagination or about theoretical pinnings or what if questions, right? I'm talking about reparations as a pathway for a more li livable future, understanding that when black lives are free, we all get free. Reparations as a system of redress for harms and injustices is nothing new, right? And there is historical precedence of this. Um, for instance, after Japanese internment during World War II, um, the government, disperse $1.6 billion in reparations for Japanese Americans who had been interned, right, as well as their family members. And so there is precedence for this kind of movement, right, for reparations in this country. And Asian Americans um, must listen to and organize alongside Black communities to demand reparation legislation at the federal right, and state level for past and continuing harms um, from slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, incarceration, surveillance, cultural exploitation, right, all these things. And this is long overdue, right, and requires us as Asian Americans to really grapple with the question of what are we willing to let go of to give up in our own lives, right, to make this a reality. Um, so I'm thinking um, about our own privileges, right, power and access. What are we willing to throw down, right? Um, are we willing to be made uncomfortable? Are we willing to raise the stakes? Thank you for sharing that, Diane. Um, given what you just shared right now about like 
you know, asking that really important question, what are we willing to let go as far as like the privileges, the access, and uh, even circling back what you said in the opening remarks, as far as uh, going, doing the disruptive work. And I want to know if you can kind of expand a little bit regarding like how has anti-blackness and anti-black racism uh, manifested in Asian American communities? Yeah, definitely. Um, so just scaling back a little bit, right? To com combat anti-blackness and anti-black racism requires us to sort of recognize it first um, and to understand the nuanced differences between terminologies like anti-blackness and anti-black racism. So that when we talk to our family members and our communities, we have precise language to talk about these systems. <clears throat> and so how, <clears throat> how I explain this to my family members is this, right? The idea of anti-blackness stems from the fundamental ideology that blackness, right? That darkness is associated with deviance, punishment, criminality, and marginalization. Um, while anti-black racism are the various systems set in place that uphold the idea that black lives are criminal, right? And it's perpetuated through the media, inter in, um, politics, law, education. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier, anti-blackness is so deeply ingrained in the collective and reflexive memory of Asian immigrants and refugee communities. And so it's really no secret then that anti-blackness is reflected in our culture, right? In how we interact with each other, businesses, institutions, um, at the interpersonal level on a daily basis. And therefore it's really important to name the insidious ways in which anti-blackness has become normalized over time within our families, um, within our communities, and within our institutions, right? A few examples that come to mind um, involve relationships, right? When our parents make comments about who we're allowed to date, right, or build in community with, the ways in which lighter skin is associated with beauty, right, and the pr proliferation of, of skin whitening creams throughout Asia. Um, and um, a global market that is profiteering off of anti-darkness, the ways in which Asian Americans stay silent when a black person is being harassed or profiled at the park, right at the store, at school, on the streets, um, the ways in which Asian Americans internalize and perpetuate the model minority stereotype, which ultimately upholds white supremacy and hurts us all. Um, the ways in which Asian Americans consume black culture Right, whether acknowledging its roots or channeling resources back to Black communities. And so these are, you know, everyday examples of how anti-Black racism permeates our daily lives and how we continue to participate in it, right? And so Asian Americans still have a lot of work to do when it comes to educating ourselves, right, looking internally um, at our families, our communities, and um, thinking about how we're complicit, right? But also thinking about what are ways to divest in whiteness so that we can invest in each other um i hope that answers no, i did question. thank you so much yeah uh, just to also get like a uh, a more whole kind of picture i know you shared earlier about the kind of intersectional uh histories um mm -hmm. you give some examples regarding the afro-asian solidarity because i know you kind of briefly mentioned it earlier but could you expand on that yeah, so I, part of this resource toolkit that will probably go out later is um, a syllabus, um, of course, on Afro-Asian solidarity politics that I taught two semesters ago at NYU. Um, 
and um, their recommended readings. Um, each week is separated by theme. Right. And um, there's so many things that Asian Americans can do to divest in whiteness. And part of that, right, is exactly learning about our own histories and histories of cross-racial solidarity. Um, so how can we look to the past and into our entangled colonial histories for examples of solidarity and resistance? Um, you might, if you do, right, you might learn about Asian indentured or coolie laborers, right, that um, there once was a coolie narrative that formed a counterpart to the slave narrative. Coolie laborers from India and China were contracted out to plantations in Southeast Asia and the Americas, largely in efforts to harden racial boundaries of Western and white dominance, right, and to legitimize the institution of slavery. Um, you might learn that there was once an anti-imperialist fighter in the Philippines named um, David Fagan, who was a black soldier who defected from the U.S. Army upon arrival in the Philippines to join the Filipino Revolutionary Army after witnessing the horrors inflicted upon Filipino peoples. Right? You might learn about Yuri Kochiyama, who worked alongside Malcolm X and the Black national organizations in Harlem to fight for um, freedom and justice. Um, and recently, right, you might have read about the Minnesota um, Asian American officer who turned his back on George Floyd, right, as he was fighting for his last, last breath. There was a, um, you know, image circulated of him visibly turning his back on, on the murder scene, right. But um, many of us probably don't know that at one of the rallies at Minnesota State Capitol stood a woman, Yimua Vong, who passionately spoke right about black liberation. Vong, a refugee from Laos, lost her son Fong Lee after he was shot and killed by the Minnesota, uh, the Minneapolis police uh, officer Jason Anderson in 2006. Um, Vong right, said in front of the crowd at the protest, I want the family to know that I will grieve with them. I will continue to speak out and support those voices that have been taken away from us, right? These are the connections between our communities, right? And the moments of solidarity that the media and our education system don't want us to see because they're so dangerous to the logics of white supremacy, right? And it is in these moments of connections between our communities that um, freedom dreams become possible and that we move closer towards Black liberation, which is liberation for all, right? At the same time, I think it's also really important to acknowledge the fact that while our struggles are so deeply interwoven, they're not the same, right? Black people have been targeted by the state and systematically dehumanized in ways that Asian Americans and Asian immigrant refugee communities will never know or face. Powerful. Thank, thank you, Diane. Want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Meister Watches. They are truly masters of their craft. From quality materials and masterful timepieces to functional lifestyle accessories for the movers and shakers of the worlds they collide with, Meister is doing it. They've collaborated with some of the biggest brands in sports, music, comic book, car culture, and pop culture. We've actually had the pleasure of collaborating with them on a timepiece a few years back. I rock their ambassador watch. This one's my everyday watch. This one's my favorite. They are for our culture and for those that are on a constant mission to master their craft. Hop on to mstrwatches.com and pop in the discount code KINJUSPOD to receive 25% off your entire purchase at checkout. And this discount is exclusive to the Kinjas podcast. You won't find this discount anywhere. Hop on to mstrwatches.com and rock with the illest. 
This show is officially brought to you by Kinesthetic. Hop on the store.kinjas.com and plug in the promo code podcast spelled with the K at checkout to get 15% off your entire purchase. We're always trying to bring you guys the illest gear for all your movement in the shadows needs. Follow us on Instagram at kin.aesthetic. Like us on Facebook at Kinesthetic Brand. So I know we were talking about policy issues just a moment ago and then talking about this intersectional histories, but also the current narratives. Um, can either you, Shay, or Diane speak about like how can how can we get involved in politics beyond the ballot box at the local levels? I know that was something you shared uh, earlier, Shay. Yeah, um, I'll chime in there. And Diane, thank you so much for providing that historical context surrounding Afro-Asian solidarity, uh, as well as limitations posed by um, anti-Blackness. And, and I think as we consider kind of the ways to sort of move forward and to demonstrate uh, this form of solidarity and in Diane's words, divest in whiteness and invest in one another, uh, I think it, it's very important to kind of think about um, the ways we're going to show up politically for one another um, outside of election years, right? So every four years we vote for the president, every two years we have midterm elections, but how do we hold these elected officials accountable uh, during the off season, right? Um, and so there are several ways um, that I would recommend to, you know, spend time, um, you know, holding, holding our, our elected officials and policymakers accountable. And remember, uh, you know, uh, being an accomplice or being an ally is something that, that requires a cost, right? Um, and so that cost, you know, it can be related to time. If that means uh, making phone calls or emailing uh, your city council people with regard to uh, policies being passed surrounding the budget, for example, as we talk about defunding uh, the police or affirmative action as we kind of think about ACA5, right? Um, it's been my experience that, like, crazily enough, despite the numerous emails that people have coming in, if you send an email and, you know, you state that you are a constituent and you have XYZ concerns, oftentimes, even if it's just, uh, you know, something that's being sent to everyone, there's some sort of response, right? There's some engagement and there's some documentation on their end that a complaint was made, right? Um, Another thing that people can do is to attend hearings, you know, to go to City Hall. Uh, for those here in Sacramento, uh, you can you can testify uh, at hearings for bills when policies are being passed and kind of let your voice uh, be heard in that way. You know, outside of protesting, obviously, like when we get out of like COVID-19 and everything going on in this moment, uh, but attending hearings and like physically showing up to let your perspective be documented and shared, uh, it, it matters, right? Um, earlier this week, I was watching some of the testimony from the assembly hearing that took place on June 10th uh, surrounding ACA 5, uh, the bill that would repeal Prop 209, the affirmative action policy. And I think it was really powerful to hear some of the sort of understandings of Afro-Asian solidarity. Um, as well as it was also kind of troubling, right, to kind of hear some of the same sort of perpetuations of um, anti-blackness that has sort of like facilitated this sort of false narrative surrounding this Asian penalty when it comes to admissions to selective institutions. And so in thinking about how you can kind of use your voice when it comes to speaking to these issues and talking to your elected officials who are accountable to you, uh, 
those are a couple a couple of considerations for those who want to to really get involved and show up on a more regular basis, uh, there are things like community boards that exist in your local town, right? Uh, you, can, you can apply online and in those community board meetings, uh, you are someone who is engaging directly with your local representatives, whether that be your city council people or your state uh, assembly people or senators, right? And there are a number of committees that you can also join depending on what your community interests are. Uh, I was a part of my community board in Harlem, community board nine, uh, and I was a member of the youth education and libraries committee. And there we spent a lot of time talking about investment in schools, issues surrounding co-location, um, and how our budget is allocated uh, in, in our district. Uh, there are also committees for those interested in senior issues, uh, housing uh, and land use and zoning, right? Uh, and so these are these are costly things in terms of time, but if time is not a resource that you have available, there's also literal investment with money. Uh, you know, investing in black grassroots or organizations, black queer-led organizations like Black Youth Project 100, right? Uh, like the Dream Defenders, um, and also supporting uh, grassroots organizations that work on anti-racism and allyship, uh, organizations like Not In Our Town. Um, and so these are a few of the ways that um, I wanna encourage people to kind of consider staying actively involved and holding elected officials accountable outside of election years. Also, donations when it comes to the election, right? Um, so I wanna plug the collective pack uh, which is a group that supports black candidates running for office. Um, and yeah, I'll end with that. Thanks. Thanks. Anything you'd like to add to that, uh, Diane? Literally everything Shaya just said is on point. Um, and so I guess for anyone who wants to get a little bit more involved, really just taking the time to learn about your elected officials, you'd be surprised at what you learn, right? And their policy platforms, um, do they represent the voices in your community? Do they represent your voice? Or is it time to vote in someone new, right? Um, and there, there really is no right way to participate. Um, as Jay mentioned, voting is one part of a much larger picture, right? And the reality is not everyone has access to the ballot box. And this is especially true um, for the one in seven Asian Americans who are, are undocumented at the moment, right? But that doesn't mean that there is no other way to participate in politics, learn about the issues on your block, um, in your neighborhood, in your city. There are a lot of resources online about where you can donate, all of the orgs um, just mentioned, right? And how to join local group. Um, I do want to uplift the names of um, two black trans groups, including um, the Ogre Project and for the um, Growls, which has created um, Nina Pop and a Tony McDade mental um, health recovery fund, right? Um, and so if you're looking for places to donate, those are options. There's always something happening, right, in your local community at the local level that you can do and support. Um, um, but it's also important to scale back right? before you do that, check in with yourself about what you can bring to the table, um, how you show up to the work also matters. Right? Are you entering the space willing to affirm and listen to black organizers and black leaders? Um, what actions are you willing to commit to this week? What actions are you willing to commit to three weeks from now, three months from now? 
for a year from now. Um, beyond this political work, are you thoughtfully building relationships with Black people in your daily lives? Right? I think those are all important questions to center and uplift. Yeah, thanks, Anne. That's really good. Um, yeah, as I'm just, you know, listening, I'm, I'm really taking in um, everything as uh, just straight up learning. And a lot of the things that um, uh, I think the pressure that I, f that I feel like maybe, you know, we put on ourselves when we feel overwhelmed by new knowledge and it's like, man, I've just been asleep this whole time or I haven't. I haven't been exercising this this uh, this ability, not only to the ability, but like kind of responsibility that I have as a, as a citizen here. And um, and you know, I know that we're talking. And uh, like Shay, thank you so much for laying out so many of the just the different things that we can be doing um, actively, right, to be in our local communities. And um, so you know, obviously, the ballot box has uh, a lot to do to enact change and. Um, even within, you know, what, uh, like our, our immediate circle within say Kinja's and what we do in terms of what we're known for. And like, uh, essentially we're an artist crew, right. Or an entertainment based company. And, um, a lot of our, you know, even probably people are tuning in tonight, um, that follow us are, you know, within our dance community and, and, um, I guess like, you know, my question is even to kind of expand on, okay, so voting's one way um, and being involved in, in uh, attending these, you know, community um, meetings and, and gatherings and stuff like that are important to kind of stay informed. But, you know, if we have this uh, ability, this reach, um, whether it be through, you know, the art form of dance, whether it's music, whether it's painting, what, what have you, um, I know that there's a lot of um, amazing art that uh, is being created and um, you know I think there's also uh, you know I, will, I would want to touch on that like you know in terms of what role does art um, and and like sort of like uh, you know cultural building uh, you know play into something like this and also on the other side of that kind of as like a <laughs> like a follow-up question because of you know this fear of uh, can cancel culture, you know, of doing the wrong thing, or I don't want to put something out because it may seem ignorant, or I don't know all the, the facts. So I think there's something there too, where I, I would love, love to um, hear um, your thoughts in terms of, because, um, you know, the intention is to obviously do good and um, to, you know, be an ally. And sometimes you might not hit the mark all the time. And, um, you know, but in the spirit of uniting and to essentially be on the same team, um, you know, how can we sort of, you know, be obviously be responsible to do your due diligence in terms of educating yourself on what it is in terms of whatever messaging that you want to put out through your art. Um, make sure you know what you're actually saying, but then um, also being so bold to put that out there because artists in general are very sensitive and and you know, they're very, you know, sensitive about their work. And um, so that itself is already hard, but especially when you're trying to put something out that's very kind of essentially touchy in the moment, you know, like how would, how would you uh, maybe, I would just love to hear your thoughts in terms of being able to use our art and then also do it in a way where, um, yeah, you can kind of be bold about it. 
I know that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> it's kind of big, but yeah. Um, so I can take a shot at that. Um, as a cultural organizer and an artist, right, I can't emphasize um, everything that, I can't emphasize enough everything that you said, Ben, um, that artistic expression, right, and thinking about just like transgressive forms of like aesthetic production um, have always played an important role in shaping social change. Um, and I just want to backtrack in thinking about this rich legacy of Asian American cultural resistance, right? Um, on the East Coast, where I'm based, right, where a lot of my work takes place, um, New York's Chinatown uh, was historically a hub for Asian American political organizing through the work of different cultural collectives, right, that came together um, to advocate for um, transformative change in their communities. And so in the late 1960s, as an example, in New York City, a group of, um, you know, like artists, dancers, muralists, musicians, and activists came together, literally um, in the basement of a tenement um, building on Catherine Street to form what later became known as the Basement Workshop, right? Largely influenced by conversations um, around Black power, third world liberation, and anti-Vietnam War protests. These early members of the Basement Workshop Collective came together to create change through art. It was a space for younger Asian Americans to use their own artistic practice, um, whatever form it might be, right, to address issues like neighborhood displacement, gentrification, inadequate health care, um, uh, poverty, unemployment, right. And so this legacy of Asian American arts and cultural production continues today in different um, formations and in new collectives. Um, there's also a long history of Black and Asian American cultural collaboration, right? Thinking about the saxophonist Fred Ho, right? And the Afro-Asian music ensemble um, that was based in New York and um, two contemporary moments like the creation of the beautiful um, mural of Malcolm and Yuri in Harlem, right? So at the most fundamental level, art changes how we relate to each other um, on a human level, right? And allows us to create the foundation for a new world, right? To dream together and to create the space to be able to dream together. Yeah, I think too, uh, I'm gonna chime in real quick. Um, also understand like art is activism, right? So um, we as artists should understand the power of art or of our art and be intentional with it. Um, and if you think about art's role throughout, we'll reference civil rights, just documenting the time, right? right? Um, documenting its history, documenting what was happening. Um, if you think about the, uh, you know, the spark of like the Emmett Till photograph, right? Like what that, what that, that photograph being published in, in Jet Magazine, right? The world suddenly was aware of uh, the brutality of American racism. So um, in regards to art's role in, uh, you know, when it comes to social justice and change, like it's, it's massive and it's huge and it's powerful. Um, and I just think that we as artists need to move with intention um, when we're putting our art out. That's a great point though. On that note, I'm wondering whether yourself or anyone else, um, 
art and activism or in in any other uh i guess field any other industry um how can we instill uh an ethics of care in this kind of work in this activism getting involved in it, and even back to what you shared diane about how we we're able to uh, further relate to each other Tough question. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I agree with everything. Ben, you, you can go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of, uh, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off of what Phil just said. Um, you know, as you're kind of uh, talking about, like, kind of just uh, art kind of being this sort of documenting, like it's like the artists are documentarians, right? Just the way that you put it, like you're showing the sign of our times, like what's happening in the world um, and, and showing it through a, uh, a perspective that may be um, not the most conventional way to look at something, but it can, I mean, what, what makes art so effective is its profoundness where it can be um, a bit, uh, I don't want to, maybe shocking is not the right word, but it can take you aback, right? And, and I think some of the most effective and, and uh, you know, profound pieces are the ones where people may not have expected something to be um, said in such a way or shown in such a way. And, um, and I think that's kind of also, uh, this could be, I mean, art is all subjective in terms of what people's uh, personal tastes and what they gravitate towards. But I think sometimes uh, the shock value of art, not to shock for the sake of shocking, but to make a statement sometimes, um, you know, when I, when I see something that kind of like makes me speechless, it's because it did something to me where it's like, whoa, got it. Like that was pretty, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's a bold statement and I get it. It made me, it may, it may make me even feel uncomfortable. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm even speaking as I'm, I'm processing, like I'm, I'm saying as I'm processing, even as, you know, uh, artists, myself, and and for Kinjas and what we do and what we create, um, there's there's got to be a bit of <laughs> you know boldness and and um, fearlessness and not to be mistaken for recklessness, but fearlessness in terms of I believe what I'm saying is something that I really believe, and um, that's I think that's art, right? You gotta there's something that's kind of gotta be at risk when you when you want to be an artist because um yeah i don't know i mean again that's it's all subjective you can have safe art too which is fine but um and even at that as even as i asked that question about the fear of being canceled and whatnot you know worst case scenario you get canceled you bounce back <laughs> you know what i'm saying and 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 uh, i think even the kind of chime in there you know about the idea of like you get canceled you bounce back i think you know the thing is as people kind of approach their work in this moment i think it's really important to just be okay admitting when you you're wrong 
and just saying, hey, you know, I approached that from the wrong angle. I learned something in this process. Admitting when you're wrong, genuinely apologizing for it and kind of moving forward, right? It's like no one is born perfectly woke or with this sort of well-formed idea of the ways in which anti-racism works in this country. In fact, for those of us who went to school here or have been in the United States for all of our life, we've experienced this process of indoctrination with regard to racism and anti-blackness that now we have to kind of actually unlearn, right? And so I think that it's important to kind of just be in this sort of continuous space, uh, to be willing to kind of unlearn uh, and do the process of learning sort of new habits and new practices of solidarity and care for one another. Yes, I vibe with I like that. that. It makes me think too of, you know, as artists, uh, understanding what our intentions are, but also the impact of the art. And oftentimes I often think, you know, there's that fine line if it's more about the message or the messenger. And as artists, it can get a little bit of gray area, you know, and that's where I think the, the deep introspective work really kind of comes into play. You know, on the surface level, it's like, no, I'm, I'm all about this cause and about, you know, the message I'm transcending, but we can sometimes deceive ourselves of like wanting more to be shine upon ourselves as opposed to what it's really trying to reach. Jason, as you kind of asked that question of instilling an ethics of care, I guess, you know, even just in relation to what we had just kind of talked about the, the balance of, um, you know, being bold uh, to, to speak up and to just to move on what you feel uh, passionate about. And also, you know, we, we had touched on this even in the last episode of this concept of uh, activism fatigue and um, the privilege that it is for, you know, non-Black people of color to be able to, uh, or, or, you know, just non-Black people in general to be able to kind of um, shut off because we're tired and you know and um that also is a uh our privilege so you know i'd love to even i mean from your perspective and from your your field of expertise too jason like um yeah in terms of how we can care for ourselves uh but to yeah i don't know stay in the fight and not um you know what i mean like how do we how do we kind of balance that fine line yeah that's a good question. Oh, go ahead, Shay. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's a really, really good question. I, and I, and I, I'm glad that you're pushing us to kind of think sort of beyond the realm of conventional politics and kind of consider the ways in which uh, these sort of new actions should kind of be manifested in our everyday lived experiences and like smaller sort of interactions, right? And so for me, um, as a black woman, it's really important that beyond the time in which these topics are trending on social media and part of the mainstream media cycle, uh, that people continue to kind of keep the same energy and uh, carry uh, this sort of like ethics of care and commitment to anti-blackness uh, throughout sort of everyday conversations, right? water cooler conversations when we're back in the office. You know, I think it's really important what you're saying about people when they're not in the rooms, you know, especially kind of keeping in mind the fact that black people oftentimes aren't in those rooms of sort of influence and 
power, right? So if you have a seat at the table, using that seat to kind of uplift and amplify black voices. Um, I think, you know, uh, in things that kind of seem small, right? Uh, when there are interactions that happen where there's kind of like a tinge of sort of anti-blackness or racial bias, you know, I, I can think of times in graduate school when people would say, oh, Shay, you know, you'll have no problem on the job market. Uh, black people always do fine. As a black woman, you'll definitely get a job, right? And people not saying anything in that moment when those things are being said, but kind of getting a text later and being like, oh, you know, that was so fucked up. People are, are stupid. And it's, it's like, it would have really kind of meant something if someone said something right then when it was happening, right? In the face of sort of anti-blackness to kind of be present uh, and to acknowledge the ways in which things that we've kind of become used to and that we've become accustomed to um, are, are not in fact okay, right? Um, and so yeah, I, 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 in the way, same way that I can kind of think of these sort of experiences of anti-blackness when I haven't had allies present, I can also think of very clear and concrete experiences of Afro-Asian solidarity. Uh, when I was on the job market, uh, I met with an Asian American scholar uh, at a place where I was interviewing, and he candidly told me his salary. You know, and I think that's another way that we can kind of continue to show up for, for people. You know, we know that black people in particular um, experience a pay gap, you know, relative to white men, black women make 61 cents on the dollar. I think for black men, uh, it's closer to around 89 cents on the dollar. Uh, whereas Asian Americans generally kind of fare better when it comes to salary and income. And so being willing to kind of have these open conversations and make sure that your black brothers and sisters are also receiving equal pay. Um, I think that these are kind of some of the ways that in our daily sort of lives without really going far out of your way, we can, you know, show solidarity and show up for one another. I like what you said just now, um, Shay, and, you know, a lot of things just kind of come to my, to my mind about that, of just really having more courage and being able to be vulnerable in those difficult situations, even as you said, like, a, you know, the water cooler and whatnot. And, you know, if I can add to that is also like, as what you shared earlier, like how can we be more accountable within ourselves? And given it in my field, particularly uh, my, my training and uh, specializing in depth psychology, we often talk about uh, shadow work. And I think it really is reflective of Kinja's as, as an organization where we, one of our mantras is movement in the shadows. And I think being able to see that uh, on two levels, one, on the, on that level of like, can I keep doing this work even when no one's around, even when no one knows about it and sees it, that I'm able to keep, um, you know, be consistent and persistent in this kind of work where I may not be acknowledged about it, you know, but just knowing that this is what I believe in and what I want to stand for. The other part to that in terms of like moving in the shadows and doing this kind of shadow work is really kind of acknowledging the parts within ourselves that, we want to admit, we don't want to acknowledge. It's so easy for us to kind of point to the other of like, ooh, they're, they're the ones that are racist. They're the ones that are homophobic. They're the ones that are, you know, any kind of uh, phobias or isms. But if we're able to really kind of take an honest look within ourselves and really do that deep work to really understand the shadow within ourselves, then I think that's what could also really kind of like let the work that we do uh, be lifelong.
a life like this. Yeah, that, that, that's really dope. Um, you know, even, yeah, as we, we have these mantras uh, that we um, have as sort of the, these pillars that uh, for ourselves, we always check ourselves by our mantras, you know, kin at all costs, um, respect all, fear none, and movement in the shadows. And I think um, even as we kind of go through the times, you know, the our definitions for those even evolve and mature and they take on so much, uh, just so many different shapes. And, and Jason, I love how you um, even just kind of uh, painted that picture of uh, movement in the shadows. I think that's awesome. Um, yeah, we wanted to give some time for Q&A, but I don't think any questions came in, which is totally fine. I mean, just whoever's tuning in on, on YouTube, um, hope that you guys are at least, you know, getting something from, from these talks. Um, but I guess to kind of, uh, you know, just to kind of bring everything, back you know um Shea, you mentioned i know the intention of this this particular episode was more so about you know uh the, the voting and and you know what what sort of change we can um create you know at the ballot box but then um that that's just one aspect of of allyship in terms of the the lifelong commitment to solidarity you know yeah voting happens every so many years um, but the day-to-day, -day, the conversations that you have at work, uh, that you, you overhear, you know, friends uh, within your own circle that may, may say, you know, out-of-pocket comments and things like that that need to be checked in the moment to, um, you know, for a lot of us, you know, as we keep saying, having these tough conversations with our parents that may not think the way that uh, we think. And um, it's those day-to-day -day things it's the, the small things compounded over time that create the biggest, you know, the largest effects and stuff. So um, that even for myself, I, that's really um, encouraging because <laughs> on a very basic level, it's like, oh, okay, I know how to live life. You know, I may not know about all the things that I need to go and vote for right now, but I know how to live life. I know when I hear something that in order or, or rather than responding as like a haha, that's, you know, that's just so and so and that's just who, how they are being able to, you know, address that and, and yeah, yeah, the accountability is so important. I think that's more of the day-to-day -day thing. That's something that we can literally do in our daily lifestyles. So, yeah, thank you so much for emphasizing that point. I um, think, too, just something to highlight that Shea had said earlier was, uh, and I know coming into this, Kinja's, um, the theme of this whole thing was allyship, but the what i found um more powerful was this um idea of, of accomplishment right like not having allies but having an accomplice in this um the difference of of an ally being temporary and an accomplice having a stake in in what is happening right now um, and i think that that is something that i think kind of shifts um this whole series, this whole narrative, um, even within like, you know what I mean? The Kinja's um, umbrella. So I just want to say like big ups on that. That was, that was dope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you said even, uh, yeah, about the accomplishment and even from our, uh, our talk last week with Kimmy Monique, she was saying to, to the next level is kinship to treat as if they're your own family, right? As if it is your own family that is going through X, Y, or Z. Think of it from that perspective and, and really take ownership, um, you know, uh, from from that perspective. And I, and I love 
you know, it's, it's a perspective. But, um, you know, again, within uh, three, you know, hour long conversations, we're not going to get everything all in one, you know, um, in, you know, in these small talks, but um, we know that these talks are valuable. Like I, I gained so much personally from, uh, from these talks and, um, you know, we intend to just keep this thing going and, and, you know, for us to even have a platform that we can talk for whoever even cares to listen, you know, we uh, appreciate you guys and, um, you know, uh, you know, Shay and Diane, thank you so much for giving us your time and, um, just sharing your knowledge. You guys just are just wells of knowledge and, um, you know, we hope we can kind of keep this, you know, going and, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just really appreciative of you guys. Um, you guys have any uh, sort of, you know, closing thoughts or any encouragements that you'd want to push out there? I think, you know, um, I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Philip, my cousin, uh, for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Diane for um, agreeing to kind of come on this journey with me. I, neither of us kind of knew exactly what we were gonna get into. And, and I, I've met Diane virtually during quarantine. And so uh, that's also kind of a silver lining in, in sort of everything that's happening right now is I'm able to have virtual experiences um, and build virtual community with folks. And I'm glad to be building this community here. Um, I, for many people, this is sort of continued work. And for others, uh, this is the beginning of a commitment to, um, you know, sort of demonstrating, um, hopefully, um, a lasting sort of engagement with, um, and with kind of combating anti-black race, uh, racism and also, um, supporting black people, uh, in all ways, uh, throughout, um, the rest of our time, right? Kind of sharing this space together. So thank you everybody. And uh, I'll pass it to Diane and maybe let her kind of wrap it up. Yeah, I'm just really grateful to be building with all of you, Shaya, for just bringing me on board, starting this journey with me. It's probably not gonna be the first time or last time. Um, and um, I don't know, something about the last question around, right, ethics of care really stood out to me. Um, I'm definitely anti-cancel culture, right, because it assumes that our growth is linear and that we don't have any room for mistakes or anything in between. Um, but when, when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, what it means in different forms of solidarity, Right, the ultimate goal is to move towards transformative justice, right? Which means that we have to go beyond, um, you know, just simple interactions, transactional interactions, and performative things, and to really um, do work in places like our homes, with our families, with our communities. Um, and so, I often think of this quote from James Baldwin, right? Um, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. And it makes me think about how there's so much work to be done when it comes to co connecting, you know, even this conversation that we're having here to more intimate spaces like our homes and with our families, right, with our parents, grandparents. How do we make the knowledge that we're um, 
you know, producing here accessible to those in our communities who might not have the educational access, right, or language that we do? How do we be more imaginative, patient, inclusive, loving, and intentional with the work that we're doing with each other? Um, does our work reinforce existing power relations, right? Or does it help us dream of and envision a future with room for everyone, right? Every single person to get free, right? And so to answer these questions, um, you know, I've definitely made a more intentional effort to speak to my own family members about the world around us, right? To make connections that they can understand, to draw on their experiences, right? As refugees, immigrants, people who have literally traveled across time and across oceans to be here. Right. And so to we, we do need to build with care, right? Um, trust and tenderness because um, there's no other way, right? We're in it for the long haul together. And so we need to be taking care of each other. Yeah, it's amazing. No, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we started off this conversation even in our, our first uh, discussion um, episode you know, Kinjas, we're not activists by any means. We're, we're, we're students of life and we just so happen to dance, you know? And so, but we do understand that we have, um, we do have a platform and, um, you know, we care a lot about uh, not only our output artistically, but, um, you know, what we internally believe, which ultimately is what um, inspires our artistic output. So, you know, um, you know, hopefully for anybody out there that, uh, what we do on a on a dance artistry level um you know just the movement media and mentality is is a part of our mission statement so um thank you guys for even you know taking the time to, to tune in with us and um to share some thoughts and you know we're not gonna we're not gonna end this conversation here you know we're probably you know we even discussed internally after the series is over we wanted to get into another sort of um internal place where we can unpack a lot of the things that we've learned even from these you know, a few episodes and um, we're going to keep the conversation going. And, and uh, again, this is us even putting it out there. I'm, you know, hold us accountable. This is our lifetime commitment to uh, changing the way that we um, um, have been doing things and tweaking things as we need to. Um, and, you know, you got to stay humble. You got to keep moving. And, and this is our efforts to do that. And so uh, thank you again, Shay and Diane. Thank um, you. If you guys uh, are listening here, you got it now. But if uh, if you care to, um, or if you want to even just go back and listen to um, all three of these episodes, they're going to be up. Parts one and two are up now on all streaming platforms, uh, podcasts. And uh, this episode will be live uh, Friday. So, um, yeah, feel free to go back there. And um, we'll plug in the, the resources that you guys have mentioned. I know we have brought, you know, some websites some different um, books and things of uh, that nature that we'll, we'll try to plug all that stuff in the show notes so that you guys can reference um, and go back and read and study, watch, listen. And, um, and yeah, share this with your, with your friends and family. You know, um, uh, this is a very important conversation and, um, you know, I'm sure they're, they're being had, but we, if you feel that this could uh, potentially help, you know, feel free to share it with your, with your folks. And um, yeah, we appreciate you guys tuning in and, um, Thank you for your time. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night.